Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to this evening's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eric Siegel, chair of the club's personal growth forum and your host. We invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. This evening, we continue our series of talks about false narratives and their cousins' conspiracy theories, which can damage the shared fact base on which democracy depends. This third talk by Dr. Sam Woolley will be about actions we can take as a society and as individuals to reduce the power of false narratives in our world. So it's now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Woolley. Thank you, Eric, and thank you to the club for having me. It's great to be here. Great to be speaking on this topic. I'm excited today to talk about uh, how we can reduce the power of false narratives, um, what we can do to fight back, as it were, and where the solutions lie in this space. If you're like me, for the last several years, you've heard a lot about misinformation and disinformation. I think it's almost unavoidable. You've heard about conspiracy theories. You've heard about Russian manipulation during elections. And so you're probably concerned about the information ecosystem. Maybe you're concerned because you have children. Maybe you're concerned because you worry about the state of of the climate and the state of people's health. Uh, disinformation and manipulation of the information ecosystem affect all of these things. And so you're right to be concerned. But today, what I'd like to do is inject a bit of hope into this conversation. Um, Of course, I am going to talk about some difficult things. I'm going to go over some things that we need to know in order to have a common conversation here, which I think is really important. These days, many times people are just talking past one another. And so today we're going to set the stage a bit. Uh, But uh, as Eric said, today's talk is on reducing the power of false narratives, and uh, let's get right in. The talk outlined today is is as follows. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. As an ethnographer, most of my work is Uh, story-based. Clifford Geertz called it deep hanging out, and that's what I do. Um, A lot of times people think that I am a a technologist, uh, a computer scientist, a data scientist. I'm not. I'm an ethnographer. I spend time with the people who make and build these technologies. And most specifically, I spend time with the propagandists who leverage these technologies in attempts to manipulate public opinion. So I'm particularly focused myself on the production of manipulation, the production of propaganda. It's been a very weird ride in the last 10 years of doing this work, um, but I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the intentions of the people who build these things. I've learned a lot about why they do what they do, how they do what they do. And in so doing, I've learned a lot about how to combat what they do. Uh, and so the project of my team, of the, all the great researchers that I work with, really, is to provide solutions, technical, social, policy, uh, legal, all of the above, in order to, to do more. After I tell you a story, I'm going to tell you a bit briefly about my team uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. 
Uh, I'll tell you about some key ideas and terms. Um, we'll talk about this concept of a little bit of a refresher from a past talk, the demand for deceit and why it exists and why it's important to understand that demand in order to understand the solutions. Um, computational propaganda has been a huge topic of my work. Um, I'm a co-author of, a, of an edited volume called Computational Propaganda in which we study this phenomenon in multiple countries, and I will define it for you. Um, and then we're going to talk about free speech versus safety uh, because at times we, we seem to be told that we can either have one or the other these days, and, and I don't believe that. I'm going to push back on that idea. And then we're going to talk about the way forward. We're going to just you know, spend most of our time at that, in that last category talking about the solutions. So first, a story about manufacturing consensus online. Um, you heard Eric mention that. Uh, it's the title of my next book. It's available now for pre-order, but it's actually building upon the work of Herman and Chomsky uh, and that idea of manufacturing consent, which actually has a much longer history in the, the study of propaganda and manipulation of thought, the spread of false narratives. In fact, Walter Lippmann, uh, arguably one of the most famous scholars of the 20th century, uh, coined this phrase, the manufacture of consent, and said that it was the prerogative of the powerful to manufacture the consent of the people through control of our media system. Not much has changed, except for the fact that we now have social media, which are not one-to-many, but many-to-many, and therefore mean, means that the scale, the size of these campaigns, uh, and where they can spread and how quickly has changed vastly. And it also means that almost anyone can be a propagandist if they have a, a little knowledge, a little bit of know-how. One such person is Hernan. Hernan is... Uh, is a self-professed digital growth hacker. He spends his days working on new and devious ways to market to clients online with a focus on recruiting social media influencers to endorse particular products. His specialty, the product Hernan most often works to promote, is politics and political belief. Specifically, he works to create authentic-looking campaigns, interactions with candidates, and causes. The key here is uh, authentic looking. They are not actually authentic most of the time. In truth, the support that Hernan drums, drums up for his clients is anything but authentic. He is not an activist engaging in community organizing. He doesn't recruit actual organic grassroots political supporters for the work that he does to support a common cause. Instead, he traffics in what he calls like exchanges. So getting one person to like content for another person and so on and so forth so that you trick the algorithm into thinking it's popular. Or reaction exchanges, so commenting on particular kinds of things uh, in the comments section to create the illusion of traffic and amplification. Hernan's in his early 30s, and he spends most of his days in a, a small office staring at a computer screen, and uh, this is all taking place in Mexico City. From his chair, he recruits people across multiple social media sites to essentially rent out their profiles for money. He and his colleagues then take over these accounts of these rising influencers, what my lab team calls nano-influencers, under 10,000 followers or so, using them to like specific political content, post comments, watch video stories, and vote in online polls. Everything Hernan does is aimed at lending politicians and other clients the illusion of large-scale online support. 
amplifying their popularity and artificially boosting attacks on the opposition. His goal is to manipulate social media algorithms to categorize particular people or topics as trending, featuring the artificially boosted content and getting in front of more real users and also more journalists who then report on the story, thinking that it's real, or report on the trend. Hernan works to create a bandwagon effect for his clients, which is one of the things that you've probably discussed in past talks, to actually recruit more real followers and adherents. Because once the bandwagon effects happens, more people glom on. Hernan is an art, a master in the art of what I call manufacturing consensus. So we've moved beyond a time of manufacturing consent, where we're simply asking people to say, yes, it's okay to go ahead with your governance or the way that you do things or your, your media um, as it exists, and towards the manufacturing of broad-scale agreement that everything's okay and we all agree. We all agree that a particular political candidate has viability, and suddenly that political candidate actually has viability because of the false support that they've had online. It's happening around the world, not just in the United States. It's happening in particular in places like India, Brazil, the Philippines, and throughout Europe and Africa. And so uh, how do we study this stuff? Well, we study it through a combination of interview, of fieldwork, and of time spent in spaces. We're not in the business of doing quantitative research per se, although we do do some of it uh, in complement to our qualitative research. We call ourselves the Propaganda Research Lab. This is a team at the University of Texas Center for Media Engagement. Um, and it's a diverse team of people working to do a lot of different things in support of building understandings around the world of this stuff. We are comparative. We are multinational in our focus. We understand the internet does not have boundaries. So why would we have boundaries in our own research? We focus specifically on emergent technology spaces. So um, we have a focus on things right now like uh, encrypted messaging applications and virtual reality, the metaverse, which you see so much in uh, the news these days in which billions of dollars has been invested by the major technology firms. Um, as the CEO of Apple fondly said a few years ago, we want to replace the iPhone by 2030 with uh, some kind of XR or VR. And so... We focus on these sorts of things. Um, our work on computational react, uh, propaganda reveals the way in which a variety of political and corporate actors and a variety of other people leverage the social media ecosystem for their own means and ends. Um, uh, our computational social science division is run by Dr. Joe Lucido, uh, who combines what we do with our ethnography to, to create, I think, a more holistic product, a product that is not simply technologically deterministic, saying there is a clear silver bullet technological fix to this and saying instead different cultures, societies, geographical regions, different spaces, terrains online require different sorts of approaches. And we cannot just come at this from one, one direction. We must come at it from multiple directions if we're actually to solve the issue. Um, uh, we have three major projects, and you'll see that echoed in, our, in, the, in the talk that I'm giving you today, which is the first is uh, a project on encrypted chat apps and propaganda, specifically looking at the ways in which Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram, Viber, these kinds of spaces are not only 
seen by many as a panacea for the problems that we have at the moment because they're private, but also the ways in which they're already co-opted by governments and the powerful in order to spread manipulative information, particularly in places like India, where the BJP has a stranglehold on WhatsApp, which is effectively many people's experience of the internet and their main form of communication. Um, and so we push back against that notion of, of, of encryption as necessarily a panacea. And we argue that in the United States and Europe, we need to do a lot of thinking about how we build capacity in this space so that as more people flock to Signal and to the private spaces on Telegram and, and these other applications, they actually don't continue just to see more of the same. And not only that, that this stuff is hidden from researchers like myself. Meta's move to go... E to E to E end to end encrypted across all its platforms is exciting in many ways. It can protect democracy uh, activists around the world. It can protect us from some of the bad stuff we see, but it can also create a black box. And so one of the things that we say is we must think more about this. We also think about disinformation in U.S. diaspora communities because where are the connective nodes between some of the manipulation that we see coming, for instance, during the 2016 election into the United States via post-Soviet countries, via the Russian diaspora community, but also talking to the Chinese diaspora community, the Cuban-American diaspora community, the Indian-American diaspora community, and working to understand what their unique experiences are on these applications, encrypted applications, but also on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, across the internet, and how crucially they're fighting back. And I think that you're going to be surprised by some of the counterintuitive uh, things that we found in these communities. It's quite heartening. They actually oftentimes circumvent the traditional tools of reporting bad behavior and are building their own sort of guerrilla capacity to respond to fake falsehoods and other things like that through their own inoculation campaigns. And then lastly, the big grandiose thing that we think about at my team is this concept of connective democracy. If you've been following politics on the internet uh, for any length of time, you'll know that when social media first arrived, many people said this is the uh, savior of democracy or it's going to usher in democracy around the world. We saw the Arab Spring. We saw Occupy Wall Street. We saw times in which technology could be used as a really beneficial tool uh, to organize and communicate. But governments quickly co-opted these spaces. Uh, so did powerful political actors and corporations and they normalize these spaces for control, if you want to put a fine point on it. But not all that goes on in these spaces is bad. There's plenty of good things that happen in, on technology and via technology. My own son, for instance, is deaf and uses cochlear implants, and uh, it allows him to hear the world. So technology is not all bad. The question is, how do we think towards the next space? How do we think towards the next stage? What does connective democracy look like? And how do we design platforms and technology with connective democracy in mind? Here's our team. <laughs> Just some bright faces I wanted to show you because I do not do this work on my own. Our team is crucial to this work. And in fact, uh, many of them know much more than I do at this stage. So maybe one day they'll be up here. Um, some key terms quickly. Uh, Myths versus disinfo, bots and algorithms and uh, computational propaganda. But first... A note on fake news. It's a term that we see going around a lot. We're talking about false narratives tonight, but one of the things that I encourage people to think about a lot is the language that they use when they speak about these things. 
The term fake news itself has been co-opted for propaganda and manipulation. In fact, it's sort of spun out of control and it's its original intention, which was to mean purposefully false articles that were dressed up to look like real news from venues that were meant to look like real venues, like the Denver Guardian, which does not exist, but spread lots of fake articles during the 2016 election is now no longer the case. Fake news is a term has been politicized. It is a term that is used to uh, attack the news media and institutions whenever a politician with thin skin doesn't like what they see or whenever uh, you know a particular pundit doesn't like what they see. They say that's fake news and it happens around the world. So please don't use that term. That's the first solution. A uh, very, very small one. Let's use false news or let's call it what it is. Let's say that it's actually misinformation or it's disinformation or it's uh, malinformation. Misinformation, as many of you might know, is accidentally spread false information. It flows all over the internet and has since the internet's been public and arguably before that, obviously. Misinformation is as old as time. Uh, it includes rumors. It includes conspiracies. But the key here is intention. People don't intentionally spread misinformation. I myself have accidentally spread falsehoods, even on social media, when I thought something was particularly interesting, um, because I thought it was interesting. I said, hey, everyone, look at this graph. And then someone said, hey, Sam, that's uh, actually fake. It's kind of embarrassing, given my position, but uh, it's happened. Disinformation is purposefully spread false content. It is intentional. It is really the propaganda, the heart and soul of propaganda. Disinformation is spread by those in positions of relative power um, or that are attempting to, to pull people's heartstrings. It oftentimes relies upon things far outside the purview of logic. It, it appeals to emotion. It appeals to sensationalism. And it borders on conspiracy and includes conspiracy much of the time. Um, disinformation oftentimes metastasizes and spreads into misinformation. So what begins as an intentional falsehood planted or seeding among, seeded amongst a populace then becomes misinformation and it becomes so difficult to track and equally difficult to get rid of because of the importance of free speech. And that's something we're going to get into in a second here. One of the core tools that have been used to spread this stuff over the course of the last 10 years, uh, 15 years are bots. Um, you know, there's some stories out there right now about bots. In fact, Elon Musk and Twitter are in a, quite a contentious lawsuit about bots. And uh, Musk has said that there's too many bots on Twitter and that he doesn't want to buy it. So that 40 something billion dollars uh, is going to, he wants it to stay in his pocket. Bots still, a still play a really big role online. They've kind of fallen out of the zeitgeist a bit, but bots, you know, obviously um, are infrastructural to the internet. They play a core role in spreading, gathering information online. In fact, according to many um, surveys, bots produce more web traffic than humans online. So there's lots of benign and good bots out there, but there's also lots of bad bots, if you like, um, uh, illiberal bots that are doing things that are anti-democratic. And the kind of bots that we're most interested here when we talk about manufacturing consensus or we talk about computational propaganda are bots that mimic people that we might call social bots for the purposes of manipulation, for the purposes of spreading disinformation. It's quite easy, actually, these days. You really don't even know how to need to know how to code um, to, to create a bot through uh, various websites. I won't give the names because I don't want you to go do it. Um, but but uh, you can do this, and you can build a bot that, that runs a social media pro profile automatically. And many people have figured this out. Um, it's been happening since Twitter was first created. But for some reason, people really glommed onto it in 2016 and said, 
oh my gosh, the bots have invaded Twitter. I can tell you that in 2010, this was happening as well during elections, but uh, we just didn't notice it as much. Um, bots massively undermine the bottom line of a lot of social media sites because they produce a lot of false traffic. And advertisers do not like false clicks and false views and false traffic, which is why Elon Musk has made this argument that he doesn't want to buy Twitter because of this, uh, but also because of the problems that exist. At the same time, you can't get rid of all bots. And so that's one of the things I want to point out here. We do have a law in California that attempts to, uh, to, attempts to control bot activity, but uh, it's only... Um, it only is limitedly effective because bots exist on the scale. There's nothing that stops a person from logging on to Twitter or Facebook or YouTube and spreading their own content on a profile that's often run by a bot. And so that free speech question comes back into it. If a person's running the account some of the time, then how do you delete it? And isn't the bot just a proxy of a person? My answer to this is yes. The bot is just a proxy to a person. There's always a person behind a bot. It is just a tool. Algorithms, I'm not going to go deeply into this. I'm by no means an expert on algorithms, but algorithms are those if this, then that uh, pieces of code that help to prioritize certain kinds of activities uh, online. In the case of social media, making decisions about what you see and why when we're talking about trending algorithms or recommendation algorithms, bots get used to manipulate algorithms oftentimes on social media. So do organized groups of people. Hernan, the guy I was talking about earlier, understands this really, really well. And what he does is he doesn't care oftentimes about his bots or his influencers talking to people, that's actually a fallacy. That's not the correct way of thinking about this. People often say, I would never be tricked by a bot. People tell me this all the time. And I'm like, well, luckily, a lot of times the bots aren't trying to trick you. What they're trying to do is trick the algorithms, which are built around quantitative or metrics, saying that, oh, this looks very popular. There's lots of people tweeting about it. There's lots of people spreading messages about it. And then reshare the content through the main page of the website or on the sidebar and say, hey, everyone, this is a trend. Everyone's talking about hashtag. One of the really sad ones was David Hogg, crisis actor after the Parkland shooting. Number one trend on YouTube, but it was massively spread by bots. And what ended up happening after that? Well, the algorithm prioritized it. YouTube spread it on their front page. And then hundreds of news stories got written about that. And the zeitgeist went crazy with this idea that somehow a shooting survivor a high school student was actually an actor, which was completely false. Now, all of this comes together to form what I call, and my colleagues call, computational propaganda, which is the use of automation and algorithms in attempts to manipulate public opinion through social media. So relying upon the underlying systems that exist on social media in order to create these bandwagon effects that I've been talking about. It's a new form of propaganda. Yes, propaganda is old. It has existed for a long time. And arguably, with each new media creation, we see new, new forms of propaganda, and we see it sort of spread in unique ways. The internet has really changed the game. What we see now is propaganda on steroids. And so computational propaganda takes up this concern and thinks through the ways in which we can actually stop this problem that exists at scale. As folks at the Rand Corporation have famously said in a, in a paper, or famously within My Small World, you can't fight the fire hose of falsehood with the squirt gun of truth. That is a truism, I think, when it comes to computational propaganda. And so that is why we have to talk broadly when we think about solutions in this space and certainly not advocate for necessarily fighting fire with fire because what we don't want to do is create an internet that is just more full of noise, that is more full of distrust, and that is more full of garbage, honestly. 
because a lot of people demand this stuff. They want to see it. And uh, previous talk discussed the psychology of this, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. But the way we think does drive disinformation. Our need to belong, our psychology, our our system of beliefs, our parents, all of these sorts of things drive why we believe what we believe and, and how we, we act. The pandemic has been challenging and the pandemic has, has, has meant that a lot of people have been spending a lot of time inside and a lot of time looking at things like this. Um, and it's also meant that a lot of people have felt lonely. And when I, when I spend a lot of, you know, in my, when I'm actually able to think about these problems deeply, and I certainly have been able to over the, the last decade, I think that one of the major reasons that a lot of conspiracy theory flows and a lot of uh, propaganda flows in the form of misinformation is that people are lonely. They have a need to belong. Many of the people who spread this kind of content are are pathologically lonely. They They belong to these communities and they say many of the things they say because they feel misunderstood. They feel left out of society. I'm not asking people to feel sorry for the reprehensible things that many of these groups say and do. But what I am saying is that if we want to bring them back into the fold, we actually have to understand their psychology. We have to understand why they do what they do. And I can tell you that shaming them or that fact-checking them will not work. Fact-checking them after they've bought into a conspiracy just solidifies their beliefs. They're already anti-institutional. And so deceit is something we must understand. We must understand the psychology. And if you'd like to understand a bit more about this, there's a paper I wrote for National Endowment for Democracy with my colleague Katie Joseph that talks about why some people buy this stuff out, why they seek it. And uh, we use some case studies in Mexico and, and uh, North Macedonia to actually talk through like how this happens in particular contexts. And we go through some passive and active drivers. This is like Psych 101 stuff, but I'm not a psychology major. And so I found this stuff really useful uh, in thinking through the solutions to the problems that we face. And so this underscores most of the solutions that I'm going to talk about here in just a second. Um, you know, I've mentioned the bandwagon effect, but also things like belief perseverance effect, the continued influence of initial conclusions, sometimes based on false novel information on your decision making and your individual beliefs, and so on and so forth from there. By now, computational propaganda kind of has a storied history, you know, like relative to uh, the age of social media. Uh, computational propaganda has been mentioned in the U.S. Congress. It has been discussed in in uh, places of high learning. It is uh, a well-known thing. Uh, people might not call it by the same name. They might talk about it in terms of influence operations or network propaganda or uh, information ops, depending on where they come from. Uh, but computational propaganda has really spread and changed. And in order to understand the ways in which we fight back, you have to understand how these changes have happened. In 2016, concerns about computational propaganda came to a head with the attacks from uh, Russia's Internet agents, Internet Research Agency um, and uh, what people called the IRA. I remember the first time a, a reporter called me about the IRA. I was like, you mean the Irish Republican Army is spreading propaganda online? No, it's the Russians. Um, and I quickly learned. Uh, uh, during that year, people lost a lot of hope in our social media systems. They lost a lot of hope in our ability to control uh, foreign powers and attempts to actually manipulate U.S. elections. And we continue to see this today, and it's not just Russia that does this. You point at an authoritarian country in the world, and they are doing this. You also point to many democracies in the world, and they're doing this too. The computational propaganda project at Oxford uh, that I used to direct the research team of 
actually has a series of reports that are all about global cyber troops that actually work to do this professionally on behalf of governments. Uh, and at last count, I believe the last report they did was a year or two ago, they said that 87 countries had official capacity to do this kind of attack. Um, and they were doing it all around the world. Um, what we've seen is a shift in the way that computational propaganda works. In the beginning, we saw lots of very clunky bots that were, you know, what they used to call on Twitter, Twitter eggs. They didn't, they just had the profile picture. There was an egg. Um, they didn't have any explanation of who they were. Their name was GFK XYZ, da, 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 da. And uh, Twitter wasn't deleting them for the longest, long time. And so you could just buy 10,000 fake followers in the form of these Twitter eggs on Twitter or, you know, fake profiles on Facebook. And you could use them to manipulate the algorithm in the way that I was saying. But now we're seeing a shift towards more sophisticated AI-enabled uh, bots that actually can have conversations, that can do the chatting that I was talking about earlier with people, and actually show success in getting people to change their minds about things, um, despite what people might think. Uh, we're also seeing... Um, a wider range of platforms being manipulated through the use of automation through the through things like headless browsing bots. There's nothing that stops you from building a bot that can just log on through the front page of Twitter like a person would do. And so now people have gotten quite savvy to the fact you don't need to use the API anymore if you want to launch your bots. Uh, you can go through other mechanisms. There is a continued focus, however, on two things. And the two things I want you to understand are the, the fact that bots... Organized groups of people, what we call astroturf campaigns, these like-for-like -like campaigns, uh, the use of nano-influencers or influencers to support your cause. There's a lot of people paying them these days. What they're trying to do really is amplify particular streams of information while suppressing other streams of information. They want to amplify all the good stuff about their person or uh, cause while suppressing the bad stuff or the opposition. It means that oftentimes there's effusively positive stuff that exists out there about particular political candidates or corporations or causes or celebrities, you name it. Uh, but it also means that there is a lot of very horrible, horrific harassment, trolling, all of these sorts of things that are used in attempts to shut other people up. Oftentimes the suppression side of things is, faced, is, is aimed at journalists, is aimed at women, is aimed at communities of color, is aimed at the diaspora communities that I mentioned earlier. Um, and because of that, one of the things that I talk about when I think about solutions is the need to protect these groups, the need to think through what it means to actually protect these groups from these kinds of things. And so how we actually not only build safety into our systems and privacy into our technological systems, but also how we actually work alongside these communities to help them use the existing infrastructure that they've built in civil society and, and in churches and throughout their community in order to help them understand the space better, but also you know, um, support them through other means too, including financially and, and through, uh, through criminalization of things that are, should be a crime, like lying about how, when, or where to vote, uh, the misinformation about or disinformation about how, when, or where to vote. That's a crime. You should not do that. You should not lie about the outcome of elections. You should not lie uh, about uh, our political processes, because when you do, you are misinforming people about our democracy and undermining this whole great thing that we're trying to do, this experiment. Um, the other thing is you, should, you are not allowed and should not be allowed, and it should and is illegal, to threaten people and to harass them. And we see a lot of that, but we don't see a lot done. So...
these attacks on marginalized communities continue. Uh, I, I was a fellow at the Anti-Defamation League for a year. Um, and one of the things that we saw is that, you know, communities that already lack a voice in mainstream politics are oftentimes the ones that are most disproportionately affected. Of course, in the United States, we don't have a hate speech law, and I'm, I'm certainly not a legal scholar, and I'm not going to advocate for a hate speech law, but I do think we have to think about these things more deeply. There have always been limits on speech in the United States. Um, uh, free speech is incredibly important, but it's not a carte blanche to do whatever you'd like. It's not a carte blanche to, to attack people because you uh, – uh, to threaten people with death because you, you disagree with them or you think that they are somehow wrong. State and non-state actors spread this stuff. So it's not just regular governments or militaries or the people that we used to think of when we thought of propaganda as being the folks who do it. We have to expand our vision of who can do computational propaganda and propaganda at large. The internet allows everyone to quote unquote be a journalist, right? You can spread a, you know, information via tweet. You can be a citizen journalist. And some of that stuff actually causes breaking news. Some of that stuff is incredibly important. At the same time, those same tools allow anyone nearly to spread pretty potent falsehoods if they know how to do it well. And so until we understand that it's not just powerful, well-resourced actors that are doing this, we will not be able to actually effectively combat it. Now, the big million-dollar question before we really get into some solutions here, um, uh, free speech versus privacy and safety. It's the perennial problem, and I, I think that one of the things that, as I said earlier, we've been told is that we can either have free speech or we can have privacy and safety, and I reject that. I think that we've had media in the past that have been able to promote free speech and been able to keep the people private and safe. These are all unalienable rights in a democracy and should be. And there should be ways in which to design technology, make modifications to it, and also to support society that help us to not always be saying any violation of uh, any kind of violation, any kind of moderation of an online sphere is somehow in violation of free speech. Because we've moderated all media for a very long time for the sake of our well being and democracy. I'm certainly not an advocate for censorship in any way, but what I am saying is that regulatory bodies have overseen things like TV and radio. And we need uh, regulatory bodies to oversee the internet. The Federal Communications Commission and the Federal Elections Commission, by and large, in the last 20 years, have given up on doing anything on the internet. They've started to do a little bit more now, and also the Federal Trade Commission's another we should mention. But we've got to have more traction in this space. And so, you know, this isn't an individual call to you here on, on, uh, here at the talk, but it's, it's a, it's a call to the regulatory bodies to say, listen, you've got to think through these things. You've got to think through some serious solutions. The way forward oftentimes seems really murky because we, we think about these things. Uh, it's easy to go down a very dark rabbit hole and think there's no solution to the problems that exist because the cat's out of the bag. The cat is out of the bag. The internet is not going anywhere. You can't really get rid of it. Its infrastructure exists around the world, and, and there's incredibly sophisticated technology to the degree now that we rely upon oftentimes satellites for connectivity. Um, but uh, what can policymakers, civil society, educators, and you do? What can you do as an individual? Well, there's lots of things. There's, there's lots of solutions out there. 
There are social solutions that we have to consider. We have to have conversations about our education system in, in the United States. We have to have conversations about how we teach critical thinking and media literacy, and we have to stop being allergic to these sorts of things. We have to make sure that our, our children are exposed to knowledge about the fact that there are people out there that are attempting to manipulate the conversation and that are doing things as just as, as subtle as changing the framing of a news article from a young age. I went to public school in the United States all the way through high school, and what I can tell you is that I never really encountered the idea of critical thinking until I got to college. Maybe my English teacher might have mentioned it a few times, but it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no class on critical thinking. There was no class on media literacy. There was no class on how to navigate the internet. And this remains true in public education around, around the world these days. Uh, it's changing slowly, but we've got to do better there. We've also got to do better in a variety of other social spaces. We've got to do better in supporting the vulnerable communities that I mentioned earlier. We've got to do better at actually helping journalists to understand how to report on this stuff so that they're not duped again and again by mis- or disinformation. Uh, there's actually a great article called The Firehose of Falsehood by a, by a colleague, um, and it talks about the ways in which journalists have to be careful when it comes to manipulating, uh, when it comes to reporting on information that might be intending to manipulate them. Um, now, technical solutions are oftentimes the ones that are the most it's interesting, particularly to people in the Bay Area because of Silicon Valley being nearby and the storied history here. Um, but technical solutions are oftentimes, to me, the most short-term solutions. And I have underneath this short-term, medium-term, and long-term. I think that we have to think through very carefully how prescriptive we are with the technology that we attempt to solve these problems with um, and how, 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 we, how universal we are in the fixes that we attempt to provide. Technology can be absolutely amazing, but it is only as strong as the social and legal solutions that undergird it. And so uh, when it comes to the medium term and long term, I, I tend to look to the legal solutions, the regulatory solutions, the social solutions, and then to the techni technical solutions. Because to me, the technical solutions at the moment are solutions of how can we get ourselves to a place that we need to be while we figure out the kind of failures of institutions writ large to respond to these kinds of problems and also the massive decline in trust in institutions, not just in the United States, but around the world. And until we do that, any technological solution that we come up with will fall flat. I was with a friend yesterday at Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and he, he was talking about this idea that I want to just pass on to you, which is this concept of hyperstimuli. Um, as people, what he was telling me is, you know, uh, Evolutionarily, we, we've developed to we, it, when we were when we were uh, trying to evade predators and whatnot, and we needed massively needed nutrients. We developed in such a way that when a food tasted good, we knew it was good for us. We needed fat, we needed protein, we needed these things. Now, today, we live in an era where fast food has been developed to taste good, despite the fact that it's not very good for us. In fact, it's quite bad for us. The analogy is similar when it comes to the information ecosystem. We've developed in such a way that we think that when we feel good, when we read something, that it must be good for us, that it must be beneficial, that it must help us. And this is a big problem because hyperstimuli, the, this concept of conspiracy theory, sensationalism, the latest stuff about XYZ celebrity, 
look at this page, look at this page, look at this page, the gamification of the internet, all of these things are intended to make you feel good, despite the fact that a lot of what you're engaging with is not actually good for you. And so one of the biggest solutions in this space is actually to train people how to react to hyperstimuli. Now, there's been people that have talked about this idea of building a more healthy information ecosystem, uh, not just designing for eyeballs on the screen, but designing for democracy and human rights and also people's well-being. And I think it's a very important discussion because conspiracy thinking is like getting off an exit too soon on the road to critical thinking. You think that you are doing research. You feel like you're engaging you feel like you're going deep and you're doing your due diligence and you're finding out new and interesting things. The problem is it exists absent an apparatus like the scientific method, like empiricism, the ability to verify and see something. And so we've got to retrain people to understand that when you're doing uh, critical thinking, you are not engaging in research absent methods. And so... There is a lot of education that has to come into this. There's several different resources I just want to point you to quickly. Um, one is first drafts, uh, you know, what they call sheep. Look at source, look at history, look at emotion, look at pictures. As an individual, these are simple things that you can do online before you, before you share mis- or disinformation. Make sure that you check these things before you share something. Look at the source. Look at where it came from. Look at whether or not it has any evidence behind it. Use Google reverse image search to see if maybe that image of a shark swimming through a city street during a flood is actually fake and has appeared in many other, uh, many other re- reports. My old project, the Computational Propaganda Project, it's now called the Dem- DemTech Project at Oxford, has this awesome thing for you called the CompProp Navigator that actually will expose you to many tools that you can use to learn more about disinformation and computational propaganda and actually how you can help yourself to avoid amplification of junk news, how you can help others. Uh, as, a, as a previous uh, speaker here in this series said, you know, we have to learn to talk about talk with the people who disagree with us politically. And we've studied this empirically at the Center for Media Engagement. And we've done some really interesting surveys about what works and what doesn't. So if you're trying to have those difficult conversations with family members who might have bought into QAnon or bought into conspiracy theories, this is for you. And uh, a few last thoughts. We have to move towards designing for democracy and human rights when it comes to our technology. We have to ask ourselves questions about what it means to encode small d democracy into these tools rather than just eyeballs on the screen. Um, There's a great book uh, that just came out from the Oxford Studies in Digital Politics called Designing for Democracy. I haven't read it, but I can't wait because that is a really important question. We also need more public interest technologists. We need more people that actually understand the technology that are going to D.C. and helping to write the legislation we so sorely need. Because right now, many of the bills that are coming out are actually quite bad. They exist absent oversight from technologists who can help to understand whether or not they're actually viable to implement. GDPR has its whole own host of problems in Europe, and it's because, I think, they did not do their due diligence in including public interest technologists in the conversations. There's a number of resources here uh, that I'd like to point you to um, before I I wrap up here. 
um, Center for Media Engagement, a few other folks that are doing really cool work in this space, mostly universities. Uh, some my bias, obviously. And, uh, you know, I also have some books of my own. Uh, the Reality Game was mentioned. Manufacturing Consensus is now available for pre-order. And I have one on bots and one on computational propaganda. So if you'd like to check those out, of course, go ahead. Uh, and uh, the last thing I'd like to say to you is thank you uh, for, for, for coming and for listening and for watching. And I'm going to turn it over to Eric. All right. We have actually a couple of additional slides we're going to show you. And these are also going to be uh, posted in the archive, as well as being, of course, on the uh, video. So we have a few here, some books. Uh, some of these are actually uh, free downloads. Some references about detecting false information. And some general articles that were quite interesting. Uh, some, some references and... Um, Re, uh, resources about uh, education. So the Stanford University Civic Online Reasoning, a set of courses that can be used, uh, the Young Skeptics, etc. Uh, then a series on constructive communications. And notice that near the bottom, we have some groups that are working to bring people together to say, how can we find commonalities in these groups where we're not just yelling at one another? And finally, some really dense technical reading at the end. So if you really want to, you know, go to sleep without using any sort of artificial stimulation uh, substances, <laughs> reading one of these, hey, I'm, sure, my friends. <laughs> I'm sure we'll put you to sleep in no time. But they're actually uh, quite good and uh, good sources for further information. So with that, we're going to go to some questions. Um, I've got a few uh, that were sent in and we've got some. Uh, online and remember, just write them in the chat, and uh, and we'll get to them. So we're going to start off. Should we sit down there? Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll start off with one that I have, which is: uh, Are there actions we can take as individuals? So our our personal interaction on Facebook, etc. What's counterproductive? Is just engaging with people generally a bad idea because it raises the score for some algorithm or whatever? What, what uh, you know, do? I'm certainly not a fan for saying – I don't believe we shouldn't engage. I think that one of the crucial things in a democracy that we must do is engage. Um, I understand that fights on Facebook quickly devolve into name-calling and, and anger. And so I'm not sure that I would say engaging with someone that you know is a gadfly or you know is just there to provoke people is a good idea. But when you can substantively talk in a connective fashion, I think that using the online sphere in that way is perfectly fine. But I think you have to make decisions about when not to engage. You also have to make decisions about when not to get on social media. One of the things that I do myself mm -hmm. is, uh, is delete all the applications off my phone so that I can only log on to them through the browser. So it's just too clunky on my cell phone to do it. So it stops me from being on there as much as I normally would be, which is a lot when I have the applications on my phone, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't done an official study, but I, it's, it's <laughs> a difference of hours. Um, and the other thing is, is as individuals, I think that we have to have conversations with our family, with our kids, with our, with our grandparents, you know, about their own habits and about the ways in which they engage. And we have to teach them in whatever way we can gently um, to understand the ways in which they are preyed upon. And some of those conversations are really difficult conversations, particularly when someone really disagrees with what you're saying. What I can tell you, though, is that the research shows that the really the best way to change someone's mind about something is, for, is to talk to them as a loved one. 
Mm. Um, when you have a relationship with someone, you have quite a lot of power. You might not think so, and you might think that it's hopeless, but you stand a lot better of a chance of changing someone's mind than uh, the Associated Press. Even though the Associated Press does a laudable job at producing nonprofit news, I think that individuals, we really have to have those difficult conversations. Um, there's so many more things I could say, but please. Yeah, that came up in our, pre in our previous talk about talking to somebody who you know, had fallen into one of these these rat holes, the idea of trust. Yeah. That as a family member, as an old friend, you have trust. Yeah. That you respect the other person. You ask him questions. You don't just say, boy, you're an idiot. Because yeah. that, as you mentioned earlier, it's not going to work. Well, you can kind of pretend you're a Rogerian or like a Freudian mm -hmm. psychologist and just say, tell me more. Ask yeah. lots of questions. Ask a lot of questions. That will get you to a place where you can actually have a conversation. Even if the results of the questions that you ask are strange and you don't agree with them, give them the space to talk through them and then ask more questions. And I think sometimes you'll find that you actually make headway. Yeah. And they eventually change their own mind. Instead yeah. Of... Yeah. We have one question that came in. What are career pathways to contribute to the effort to protect the populations that you mentioned that are vulnerable to computational propaganda and establishing cr uh, criminal uh, Penalties. You mentioned one earlier. Great, yeah. great question. Um, so this idea of public interest technologist is one that can be come at from a variety of angles. Uh, Joan Donovan, who's who's a fantastic researcher in this space, who studies disinformation also from an ethnographic lens, mostly studies the the far right in the United States and and uh, white supremacy and right wing extremism, says something that I really like, which is that we've built the plane, we have the plane, mm -hmm. now we need to build the airport. Now we need air traffic control. Now we need security. We need all these things around it. We already have some of these things, but all of the jobs that are going that are being created are kind of, you know, helping towards this infrastructure. So if I were a young person, I would think to myself, what are the things I really like? Am I, I do I love debate? If I love debate, then maybe a career in the law looking at, at uh technology law would be a really good space to go into right now. I think there's going to be a proliferation of jobs all about regulation online, carrying out the law online, um, you know, whether it's, it's in the space of social media or in the space of robotics. Similarly, uh, you know, if you're interested in engineering, I think there's a lot that you can do towards entering this, this a career as a public interest technologist, taking computer science classes, but also challenging yourself to take humanities classes as well. Because through the humanities, you will get uh, the philosophy that you need to sort of challenge the idea that you only need to focus on one problem at a time, that actually everything is, is connected. Um, uh, there's lots of companies out there that are hiring in this space. There's security firms like Bellingcat and FireEye uh, that are doing great work. So if you wanted to go work for them, you could. If you want to be an academic, you could. We also need a lot more great journalists, and there's a lot of innovation happening in the journalism field. Um, you know, Of course, everyone knows about spaces like ProPublica, which have done great investigative work. Uh, but there's also emergence platforms like Grid, which are producing great new news aimed at a younger audience, but that is investigative, that has a lot of uh, a, a lot of tenacity and is more nimble and built for the digital environment. And so, you know, the possibilities are endless. Um, and I really hope more young people know that, you know, if you want to go into a career, go into a career that's focused on things like trust and safety online and and. Uh, yeah, and and, and yeah. education, train the trainer oh, or yeah. 
you know, high school and elementary school. Oh, yeah. Development of courses and the training trainers and, and teachers and how to, you know, give those courses. That's a phenomenal point. Um, we, we are, we're, we're at a tremendous disadvantage in this country in a, in a situation where our teachers should be treated a lot better than they are. Um, but I think we, if we begin to do better and if more people begin to go into this space and fight for it, that it could possibly be arguably the most important space of does, any of Does these. Europe do anything in that, that area? or do you... Some countries do, yeah. Some countries have more robust programs for helping to educate children about media literacy. Um, unsurprisingly, many of the Scandinavian countries have more systems for this. Um, Denmark, uh, Finland come to mind. Um, but uh, but no one has developed a, a great system. I think um, Estonia, you know, which thinks a lot about technological issues, particularly because it hmm. faces a lot of threat from Russia has developed a lot of tools in this regard. Uh, Thomas Ilves, uh, the former um, head of state of Estonia, has spoken quite widely about these sorts of things. We have another question here. Why do people in the culture resist media education? You know, you want to teach them and then they were like, we don't, you know, if it's not reading, writing, and arithmetic, we don't want to hear about it. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think that there's a, a lot of things at play here. One is that there's been a systematic, systematic dismantling of trust in institutions in the United States and around the world for many years. So the propagandists that we're talking about are very open with the fact that they've purposefully worked to undermine public trust in education, in medicine, mm. in governance, because it creates a power vacuum, a space wherein they can enter and be the authoritarian leader that we so hope for to give us the direction that we need. It's a sad state of affairs. And so one of the things we've got to start doing is rebuilding trust in the media, rebuilding trust in journalism, in academia, medicine, et cetera, so on and so forth. Um, and until we begin doing that in a concerted way and thinking about this very systematically, uh, I think that we'll continue to face a lot of challenges. The other thing is people are rightfully in some ways skeptical of the media, right? Like Herman and Chomsky wrote Manufacturing Consent as a book that was about the ways in which the media was beholden to the powerful in many ways. And we still face that today. I think there's many news media organizations that you can probably name online, those of you tuning in, that are, are beholden to powerful interests on both the right and the left. And so we need more independent media voices. I mentioned the Associated Press in sort of a joking way earlier, but they're phenomenal. You know, we need more Associated Presses. We need more, we need more of the NPRs of the world. We need more of those kinds of organizations that are actually operating as perhaps nonprofits or from a position of more neutrality. True objectivity is not possible, of course. Like we all come with some subjectivity. We are humans, you know, like we, we have our own backgrounds and no reporter is different. But we've got to fight for objectivity. The pursuit of objectivity is what's important. Being transparent, having clear ethics guidelines, and abiding by those ethics guidelines when you write news stories is so important. And we've seen a lot of that go out the window in the last 20 years. Yeah, I, uh, I saw an earlier article with, that talked about how with the, the failure of local media, you know, it used to be you knew the local reporter. He's the guy who showed up, you know, at Cub Scouts and you know, t-ball games. And so there was some trust. And now with the, the failures and, and, and loss of local media, there's not so much trust anymore. So how do you, you know, can there be groups or, 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 or you know, how can social groups help to start restoring this trust? How, yeah. how do we restore this trust? 
That's a really great question, and it's a really great point. Um, I do think that social media companies bear a huge amount of responsibility for a lot of the failures in the journalism system. Of course, journalism should have been more nimble. Media should have been more nimble in responding to the, the creation that was the internet. Simultaneously, however, social media companies massively benefited from all of the content that was being created by these news media organizations. They shared them in their news feeds. They weren't paying the local media organizations when they were showing them in their mm -hmm. feed. And so one of the things I've argued, I think, kind of provocatively in, in Wired is, is that we need kind of like, like we had the tobacco master settlement plan in the 80s, we kind of need a social media master settlement plan to try to reinvest okay. in local media organizations in a way that is actually substantive, because there's still people that want to do that work, but most of those organizations have shuttered. And so one of the things we do need to think about is new financial models, like, you know, moving out of the advertising driven model and towards more subscription models and other things like that. Um, um, we got to get creative. Yeah. We have another one that came in, just more a psych question, but so we'll try it anyway. How much influence does preconditioning as a child to accept authority through faith uh, play in the adult refusing to accept reason as an argument? Huh. You know, you're preconditioned that young age, that faith is what. Yeah. You know, kind of a. Faith, like anything else, is not a one-size-fits-all thing. And so there's many systems of belief within systems of belief that actually prioritize higher learning. You know, the Jesuits are a classic example of this. Um, and there's similar examples in the, in the Muslim and Islam community uh, and so on and so forth. Um, the problem is, in many communities of faith, there, there is a tendency towards extremism and there is a tendency towards the hiding from truths uh, or from science that is inconvenient, as Al Gore so, so finally put yeah. it. Um, and so, you know, uh, preconditioning matters. Um, I do think we're a combination of nature and nurture. I, you know, I certainly don't think that we're only nurture by any means, but nurture does matter. Um, we do see in the psych lit and in the academic lit that the way that you're raised, um, absent any kind of like rebellion or leaving your family or being excommunicated from your faith, has a huge impact upon what you believe later in life. And we see this all the time. At, I see this at UT all the time. You know, we have parents, we have kids who come from a background where their parents are deeply Catholic and they come to school and their way of relating to lots of things is through their experiences in the church. And similarly, we have students who come from a household that's atheist, and, and they have a completely different mm -hmm. perspective. And, and the great thing about education, and especially a li liberal arts education, is you get them all in one classroom, and you get them arguing. And you get them talking through why they think certain things. And it's like that, you know, that, that Socratic, oh, it's the Socratic right. method, right? It's asking questions, answering them, and, and there is a beauty to that. And it's, it's honestly one of the reasons why I wanted to become a professor. Oh. We have one final question. Sure. And that is, um, how can humor be used? I mean, does that help break down the barriers? Does that work or is that not work at all? I mean, what do you think about that whole? Yeah, I was laughing over this a couple of minutes ago with some folks, uh, yourself included, Eric, mm -hmm. that, you know, you all probably saw that um, birds aren't real. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> news that was reported as, as high up as in the New York Times. And I think, I think it's fantastic. Um, my colleague, Katie Joseph, who I wrote that Demand for Deceit paper, has said to me again and again and again, Sam, we need to do research on satire. We need to do research on humor because it could be an unlikely antidote to a lot of the problems that we face. And I think she's very right. 
Um, we see some of this happening, and we've seen it for a long time. Of course, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and these kinds of people mm-hmm. built their careers on this idea of satirical news or of humor surrounding current events. I think we need more of it. Honestly, I'd love to see more humor. I'd love to see more satire injected. And I mean, think about the most bombastic person you know. Think about an authoritarian leader making fun of them, taking the wind out of their sails, giving a little ribbing, uh, not taking them seriously is the worst thing you can do to them. An authoritarian person, a dictator, not being taken seriously, I mean, it completely ruins their whole line of of, uh, acting. So, yeah, we need more humor. More jokes, right. More jokes, okay. yeah. <laughs> Our gratitude to Dr. Sam Willie for being with us today. And we thank also you. think that we should thank our audience, as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 119th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.